We're going to begin chapter 41 uh, today. Uh, This is the narrative dealing with Joseph, as you know. Um, He had uh, um, been in prison and all of the reasons, you know, he ended up there. And the uh, cupbearer whom he had helped interpret a dream for him, and he's released, and it says he did not remember Joseph. So you begin chapter 41, verse 1. It's two years later. After two years, so that means, and we are understand that chronologically, two years after the cupbearer's release. So that means Joseph spends, and that, yes? How long was he in prison? <laughs> That's what we were trying to figure out on the way home. Joseph. Yes, last week. Um, he, the total, the total time? Yeah, okay, because um, he was probably in prison all told uh, close to 10 years. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It, you know, there's segments to it. But this, uh, it, when you think of what, if you, I think it's the right way to put it, it, what got allowed to happen with the interpreting of the dreams and so on, and the cupbearer did not remember, you still think, well, if Joseph is thinking, the Lord's still going to get me out here pretty soon. He's two more years. Mm-hmm. So um, you have something that, of course, is the key to him getting released ultimately. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Now, um, I want to, if I can, I want to talk a little bit about the Egyptian worldview at this time. Um, I think it is really helpful, uh, and it's going to be helpful next book we study when we get to the book of Exodus. But I think you know this uh, anyway, so I'm not going to go through all those details, but the... Egyptian worldview is a polytheistic worldview. You know what that means, many gods. They, they believed the world just was filled with gods. Everything in nature is associated with a god. However, and this is really important, the chief ethic of the Egyptian worldview, and I'm translating from a hieroglyphic term, but anyway, was ma'at. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but when you understand that, then you understand even what's going on in chapter uh, 41. Ma'at was a word that stood for order and predictability. And it was Pharaoh's job in this pantheon of gods, and there were many, 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 many of them, It was Pharaoh's job, and Pharaoh was an incarnate god in the Egyptian um, pantheon of gods. You know what incarnate means, don't you? Okay. And Pharaoh, among other responsibilities, Pharaoh's main responsibility was to maintain Ma'at. Maintain the order and the predictability and the stability of Egypt. Now, one of the reasons that this was so important to them was because the Nile River, which is, of course, the lifeblood, the lifeblood of um, Egypt, the Nile River flooded every year, and what Pharaoh, through his, his minions, was able to determine, they could determine the exact day it would start to flood. And he sent, his, he sent his emissaries all through the Nile. The Nile, as you know, is a very, very long river. It goes all the way down to Central Africa where it rises. It's one of the few rivers on planet Earth that flows from the south toward the north. 
Most rivers uh, flow from the north to the south, but not the Nile. And of course, it empties into the Mediterranean uh, Sea. So that that he was able to, that is a pharaoh again, was able through his emissaries to determine exactly when the flooding of the Nile occurred, enhanced that responsibility he had, and, it, and again, the predictability and order of Egyptian civilization. Because everything was built around the Nile, and they knew exactly when the Nile would flood, because it rises in the central Africa, and just, you know, you know how it gathers silt and all that stuff along the way, it just... It was just, it was central to everything about Egypt. So when it says he's dreaming standing by the Nile, I want you to understand that has significant theological implications for Egypt. This isn't just a happenstance that, oh, Pharaoh's standing by the Nile. No, no, no. This is, this is central to the Egyptian worldview, central to how Egypt looked at things. Our Pharaoh maintains ma'at the order and stability and predictability of our way of life. And what he is now going to dream is just the opposite. Because his dream threatens to undermine the order and predictability and stability of Egyptian way of life. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. Now that was not unusual because all along the Nile were the different animals that they herded and because it is so hot, and there are so many flies and everything in the Nile River Valley, it was not unusual for the animals to get into the mud or get in, to just protect themselves, be cooler, and keep the flies away. So again, up until you get to the rest of the dream, none of what is in verse 1 and 2 is unusual. But what he sees are these seven cows of trap. They... Fed in the red grass, behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. Now, again, it's a strange dream. It's a bizarre dream. But I want you to remember, we've talked about this earlier when we were looking at the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Having dreams and having dreams interpreted was very much a part of the ancient world. You and I have, I don't know how you are. I mean, I can't imagine you're any, you know, I, in, in a given week, I have a lot of dreams. And some of, you know, just quick dreams, fast dreams. It's usually they tell us anyway, it's shortly before you wake up in the morning. As you're coming out of a deep sleep, your brain, you have dreams and so on. And they're just some of really absolutely bizarre dreams. And you wake up, boy, I'm glad that isn't true. You know, and then you go back to sleep or something like that. But in the ancient world, that's what they believed. That's how the gods communicated to them. And so as Pharaoh is dreaming this, it's at, that's what I'm trying to drive across. I hope it's, it's getting there. This is at the center of how Egypt looked at everything. Here's our Pharaoh. Here's the Nile. Ma'ad is our chief ethic. That's his responsibility. And what he's seeing in this dream is upending that. And so he has a second dream. Verse 5, he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Behold, seven ears of grain. Plump, good, we're growing on one stalk. Okay, that's not unusual. Grain to grow, it's plump, it's rich, because the Nile's such a rich river valley. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears thin and blighted from the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump fool ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So verse 8, in the morning, 
his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called all the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now again, I said this before, I'll repeat it one more time. Verse 8 is not an abnormal or atypical or unusual thing to occur. The leader of the country has dreams, he wants them interpreted. Who does he have? He has professional people that are on his payroll who are the magicians and astrologers and the, the, the dreamers themselves and all of these individuals. Your job is to tell me what that dream, dream meant. Well, it's, it's really kind of funny in a way because who's going to test whether what they're saying is true? They could make up any interpretation, right? So he depends, he, the Pharaoh, depends on what they say. But the problem here was none of his professional dream interpreters, the magicians, the wise men, the conjurers, could interpret it. So he doesn't know what to do. That enhances the anxiety that he's feeling as Pharaoh because you see, if he is not able to maintain the order and stability and predictability of Egyptian civilization, his role as Pharaoh is threatened. That means the gods are against him. Again, I'm just trying to get you to understand why this is so important. Verse 9. Then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, who's he? He's the guy that was released at the end of chapter 40. Coincidence? Happenstance? No. Here you see God's all over this thing. Cupbearer said, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed the same night, he and I each having a dream with own interpretation. Verse 12, a young Hebrew was there. A servant of the captain of the guard. And he told, we told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. As he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office. The baker was hanged. So you can see God's providence here. The cupbearer remembers Joseph because it said in verse 23 of chapter 20, 40, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Now he remembers Joseph. So you think that was divine? That part oh, I don't. I don't have any doubt. I wouldn't say I think. I absolutely know with total certainty that God is in control of this. And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. That reminds you that this isn't a Holiday Inn kind of prison. I mean, he's, this is a difficult time for Joseph. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had had a dream. There's no one can interpret it. I've heard it. You, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And I want you to know the extraordinary nature of Joseph's response. Verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You know, Joseph would have had every right, it would certainly have been natural for him to say, yeah, I've done that. 
I'm kind of an expert at that. I would be happy to do this, provided you let me out of prison. That's not what he says. He gives the focus to God. And so you see here, I guess, two qualities of Joseph that are so central to him, his humility and his faith. You really see that percolating to the surface in verse 16. If he had said, yes, I've done this, I'd be happy to do it. And that's what it said in the verse. We just keep reading and say, yep, that's good, got it. But that's not what happens. And you just see these little insights, little windows that are lifted temporarily into the true character of Joseph. Humility and faith. And Pharaoh said, behold, now I'm not going to read all this because all he does is just rehearse the dream that we have already read, okay? All the way through verse 24. He just reviews the dream. We've already read all that, so I'm not going to waste your time in, in, in going through all that again. Now verse 25, this is really what what is the apex of this particular part of the narrative. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. You dream two dreams, they're saying the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Would you notice that language again? God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Who's in control of things? God is. And what God is doing, Pharaoh, is he's graciously, magnanimously, mercifully letting you know what he's about to do. Again, I I just want to stress uh, uh, one more time. Joseph is trying to keep Pharaoh's focus on God. It is God who is revealing this to you. I am merely the instrument. The seven good cows, verse 26, are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. Remember, the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. Verse 28, again, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The third time Joseph has given focus to God. Verse 29, there will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Verse 32, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. In other words, God's repeated it twice for emphasis. It is going to happen. Don't miss it. Don't pretend it isn't. This is a declaration of God. It's going to happen. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Now that is really important information for Pharaoh given what I briefly talked about here, because now Pharaoh, who is in, in given the main responsibility to maintain the stability and order, can prepare for that. 
even because famine is not an unusual thing. I mean, you know, you think of the history of the United States, I mean, times of drought and all that and so on. But so it's not unusual, but it's catastrophic for Pharaoh if it just hits him unprepared. But God, and this is what Joseph's trying to say. God in his grace is letting you know this. And I'm the instrument by which you know it. So then, then, then Joseph does something that, you know, I, I think it's a little bold on his part. But he doesn't just stop there. Verse 33, he gives him some counsel. Now remember, he's a guy who's been in prison for years. And he's been hauled out of that prison, cleaned up and shaved and all that stuff. And here's this slave standing in front of the most powerful man in the world at that time. And by the way, just some thought here, Pharaoh, verse 34. A Jew. And he's a Jew. That's right. He was identified as a Hebrew by the cupbearer. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear. And that, when he probably said that the Hebrew, he did not necessarily mean that in a positive way. It was a, a racially charged word. And this guy, but you know, he did get us to the dream. So I just, I think it's almost a boldness and audacity here on the part of Joseph. Um, now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. And set him over the land of Egypt. Verse 34. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against seven years of famine that are occurring <clears> in the land of Egypt so the land may not perish through the famine. Wise counsel from a slave to the most powerful man in the world. But it's good counsel. Jim, I got one more thing. I'm Absolutely. To ask all, Absolutely. All of today. It's showing Upper Egypt here. Is mm-hmm. that where they're at? They're in Lower Egypt. So we probably have that map too. Uh, I'm not sure I did give you an exact map of that. But uh, yeah, but remember, they called it Upper Egypt and Lower Upper Egypt is where the Nile rises. We would look at that and say, that's Lower Egypt, but no, because of the Nile. Upper Egypt is the south, Lower Egypt is the north, because the Nile is flying, flowing from the south to the north. They are in Lower Egypt. They're around, I don't know which map you have there, but if, if you find it's it, they're around Memphis. They're around Memphis, not Tennessee. Well, no, it's great. I, I, I appreciate that. It's good for you to... No, but it's good for you to... I think that's what makes the Bible come alive, when you really know the geography of what's going on. But they're close, Woody, they're close to the Nile Delta, where Pharaoh's uh, capital, it, it switched a variety of times. They moved it. But he's up near Memphis is where he is, up near the Nile Delta. Upper and northern refer to geographic elevation. Yeah, but he—they're in Lower oh, Egypt. I see the Nile Delta. Yeah. Okay. The they're co- they're close to the Nile Egypt. Uh, Nile well, this Delta. Does have lower okay. Good. Good. But that's really good that you raised that question. Ninety-nine point nine percent of people who sit in the pews of churches have no idea, <laughs> but now you do. All right. Let's look at what happens now in in in, in the really extraordinary conclusion of this situation Joseph finds himself in. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this 
in whom is the Spirit of God. Now, I think you would agree that is an astounding statement. And part of our struggle, you know, in 2016, and I'm trying to get you to understand the Egyptian worldview of things, the Egyptian worldview included many, 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 many gods. So when he is saying the Spirit of God, as a Christian in 2016, you're going to say, oh, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The content of his question does not necessarily demand that he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? But what is he recognizing? He's recognizing divine sovereignty here. He's recognizing this is not natural. There is no natural explanation for everything I've just been told interpreting the dream plus the counsel that I've gotten. This is from God. This, this, man evidences, this man evidences divine counsel, the counsel of the gods. He evidences a spirit of God. So what he is recognizing in Joseph is a, a, is a, is a divine presence, if you will. And because it's very, very difficult for me to make the contention that he's talking about the Holy Spirit of the one true only God, Yahweh Elohim. I doubt very much if that is the content of his theological understanding. You follow me? But he is recognizing correctly this is not explained humanly. There's a divine explanation for this. And so he is then in effect saying, God is with this man. And I want him in my government. It's exactly, you can go back and study this in another book, it is exactly the conclusion Nebuchadnezzar reached about Daniel. You see, wherever God has his man, he will manifest those attributes so that pagans will even conclude, there's something about this individual. I want this individual around me because he is saying things nobody else says. And so it's just it's a, it's a great testimony of how God empowers people to accomplish his purposes and his instruments there is instruments and and others recognize that. And so what God has done as he has in his, in a very real sense honored the humility and honored the faith of Joseph he's now about to, as he did with Daniel he's about to elevate Joseph to the most powerful position in ancient Egypt, next to the pharaoh himself. Yeah, Jim. Even though Joseph was given revelation by God to interpret these things, my suspicion is that Joseph didn't really know what God's plan for him was, except step by step by I, step. I think that is correct. Which, I mean, it seems to me that's the way the Lord does hmm with us today, too. Oh, yeah. might put us in a place or a position mm -hmm. to be used, but maybe not reveal the reason why mm -hmm. for a time. But. I, you're right on there. Uh, absolutely. I see no evidence or reason to believe Joseph understood everything that was going to happen to him from day one. 
Nor did but see, step nor by did, step, he's trusting the Lord. Nor did he see God's plan to use all of this to rescue the nation of Israel. I doubt. I doubt it. I doubt it in in any in any specific detail. Yeah. Now, there is one little piece of information that we do have to always keep in our mind, and how much this was taught, how much this was passed on from generation to generation. But if you go back, we studied this quite a few months ago. But if you go back to Genesis 15. Abram has just defeated the armies of Ketelelmer and rescued Lot. Do you remember that story? And then, then God's—he's uh, kind of down. Uh, Abram's kind of down. He said, "Lord, I, 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 you know, I'm really struggling with this. I still don't have a son. Is Eliezer my servant to be the one? Is that how you're going to do it? Because it's been years now since Genesis 12." And God says, "Oh no, no, step outside your town tent." And he said, "Look up in the sky." And he says, seal the stars, number them. That's the number of your descendants. And in verse 6 of chapter 15, say it says, And Abraham believed God and was counted him as righteousness. And then God makes the covenant promise to him. But as he may, again, he reiterates that covenant. He cuts the covenant. But he says, now, Abram, you are not going to see this. You're going to go the way of your fathers. I mean, you're going to die. But your descendants are going to be in a foreign land for 400 years. And they're going to be there as slaves. But then I'm going to bring them out of that. And then I'm going to put, I mean, it's just, so God is laying out for Abraham the basic outline of how he's going to fulfill historically this promise. So Jim, how much of that in its details is passed on? And Joseph is in Egypt and he started to think, hmm, could, I don't know that, but could this be land? And particularly as he gets into the into the positions of power in Egypt, and it's just it, it's it's the Bible just doesn't explain this to us. But it would seem to me that it would not be unreasonable that Abraham passed that on to Isaac, and Isaac passed that on to Jacob, and Jacob passed that on to his boys. Just a certain understanding of how God was good. God keeps, to every one of these generations of the patriarch, he keeps repeating the promise over and over and over and over again. This is what I'm going to do. And I, maybe I can extrapolate that. And in the same way we just studied Revelation, yeah. in which God laid out his, his basic framework, yeah. long-term plan. And while we don't understand perhaps our specific roles in that, and uh, and the key element of that plan is the regathering of God's people to the promised land. Right. Is that regathering of God's people to the promised land an historic fact that is occurring? I hope you would answer yes. Well, of course, <laughs> so, I mean, it's just all that is, it's not giving us, okay, that means uh, two years from now that Jesus is returning. That's not what it means. It just means that is another one of those markers that God had explained and so we're just kind of keeping our eyes on those things because that means the day of Christ's return is getting nearer. I mean, it's hard for me personally, but I, you know, never, I learned a long time ago, don't ever try to set dates. But it's very hard for me to imagine that it is not that much longer. What Russia is doing right now in Syria is absolutely extraordinary. Vladimir Putin is realizing something that Catherine the Great and Peter the Great, the great Tsar Tsarina of Russia, realized. They wanted bases and presence in the Middle East. They could never get it. 
What's Putin? Putin's got a naval base and two air bases in Syria, which is just north of Israel. And the Bible tells us that the great power of the north is going to be very, very good friends with Israel. And Vladimir Putin is befriending Israel, unlike any Russian leader has in, in decades. He's a devout Russian Orthodox. He wants to reestablish the Russian Orthodox presence in Jerusalem, and Netanyahu is very interested in that. I mean, it's just, so I don't know, just little things that you read about, you say, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. Nobody has noticed that. There have been a few people that have, you know, been reflecting on what Putin is accomplishing. And, you know, the United States under Obama is pretty much disengaged from the Middle East. You know, there hasn't been much involvement there, which I'm not sure is wise. But, and so there's just, and what Iran is doing, and Ezekiel 38 says that the Persians are going to link with the power of the north. And that's kind of what's happening. Before. It's just really fascinating. But we'll see what happens. I might be all wrong tomorrow. It'll all collapse. And everything I just said to you, Stacey Ekman doesn't know what he's talking about. Because only God knows the plan. But, yeah, but there are certain little benchmarks that seems to me the one is the regathering of God's people to the promised land. One of those benchmarks you mentioned uh, a couple a few weeks ago was that this all has to happen in this order for the Jews to get to Egypt. Absolutely. Like it's, Absolutely. It's just orchestrated perfectly. Absolutely. His brothers are going to come up. Exactly. And, you know, I read ahead. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and, it, and it all has to happen to fulfill God's promise to that, Abraham. That's exactly you know? right. And, uh, what God had said is going to happen, this is a very key point in that happening. It explains how they get to Egypt and why they're in Egypt. And why? And then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. All right, now let's continue then. Uh, I don't know how I got on that, but oh, I know it was Jim's fault. Uh, That's right, it was I'm all Jim's sorry. fault. No, I'm just kidding. It was a great question. It was absolute important application. And Pharaoh said to the see, um, since God has shown you all of this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Now, isn't, just look at the verse, verse 40. Isn't that absolutely astonishing? It's just a slave. You've got to keep remembering, it's just a slave. A Jew. And a Jew. I mean, and, and Pharaoh is saying this to him because of what happened in the previous paragraph. There's something about him because we're the captain of the guard. Exactly. And he's just, he's, God has... Created and gifted Joseph in such a way with the kind of wisdom and discernment plus everything about his demeanor that he's just a natural leader. And Pharaoh recognized it. He's a man with a reputation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the Potiphar, character and reputation. Exactly. Because Potiphar said exactly the same thing. Yes. And Pharaoh probably is not ignorant of. That's right. Yeah. Because Potiphar would, was in the top echelons of the government and then the cupbearer had said the same thing. So it's just repeated again. This man has a reputation. This man has character traits that everybody notices. There's no vetting time. Yeah. And there's no questions about what what, what did he do to get himself into prison. Yeah. At least not recorded. As, as, uh, yes. And it's just, it's just the, as we've read now several times, we're going to see it coming up again. And the Lord was with Joseph. Yeah. The Lord, <clears throat> that, what explains this is the Lord. 
Yeah, pre-grammar was pre-vetted by the Lord. That's right. Now, there are a number of things here that I want you to observe in verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set all you over all the land of Egypt, which is just another just extraordinary statement. Now, look at what he does. Then Pharaoh, there are, I've itemized out six major items that illustrate the power and authority that he's giving to Joseph. And he took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Now, you you know what a signet ring is. And so, I mean, he is, that in and of itself is, is, is nothing short of just absolutely staggering. The signet ring that Pharaoh wore, which he would press into the clay documents when he sent orders or diplomatic vouchers or whatever, he gives it to Joseph. What's that mean? Joseph, now you do that. Man, he is the second most powerful man in Egypt. Number two, and he put a gold, um, I uh, skipped one, on his hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen. All that means is he's now dressing as an authority figure in Egypt and put a gold chain around his neck which was the typical jewelry worn by a a top official. So everybody that looks at Joseph, immediately, he doesn't have to have a title. He doesn't have a title on his door. He just, he works with Pharaoh. He's the most powerful man next to Pharaoh. Every evidence of that. And then the fourth item, verse 43, and he made him ride in his second chariot. Pharaoh had many chariots. The top one, and what these looked like is always problematic and try to figure it out. We have some of, some of these are recorded on the pyramids and on the, uh, like at Karnak and Luxor, those great temples farther down the Nile. So a pretty good idea. These were not the little chariots like you see in Ben-Hur. You know, one person can barely get on it. These are fairly large chariots. Multiple people could stand. So it says, I'm giving you the second the second one, my second chariot. I'm keeping the rolls, you take the Cadillac, you know, that kind of thing. And so he says, and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him all over the land of Egypt. And so bow the knee, and I mean that's not worship. That that's not worshiping. It, what it means is you are now deferring to his authority. It was a symbolic. Like you, if you were to, maybe some of you've done that. I don't know your background, but those of you who have been into the presence of Queen Elizabeth II, know that you have to bow before her. That's just deferring to her authority, recognizing who she is, and so on. That's all that's saying. There's several more. Moreover. Pharaoh 7, verse 44, said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And this is the fifth thing he does. He changed his name, and he called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah. Now that is an Egyptian name. You will search long and hard to find that used very often in the rest of the book. But he now gives him a, an Egyptian name. And then notice, he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So now he gives him a, another woman, or I shouldn't say another woman, gives him a woman who is in the high court of the religious 
hierarchy of Egypt. He gives him a wife. Now, it's really interesting. We'll see what happens as a result of this marriage in just a little bit. We, I wish we knew more about that. That sixth item there, giving him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. But all of those names are not Hebrew names. They're not Jewish names. They're Egyptian names. The priest of An is an Egyptian uh, uh, priest it's of that pantheon of gods. So it's really curious. But you'll see something in a minute that might give us a little bit of a different perspective on this. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So it's just... Um, it's a remarkable affirmation, these six items, of Joseph going from a slave to the second most powerful man in Egypt. And remember, at this time, this is, um, this is in what is called the Middle Kingdom of Egyptian history. Uh, it is, it's at one of the apex points in Egypt's history. Egypt is probably at this point, this is about... 1876 B.C. or so, uh, this is when Egypt is the superpower of the ancient world. There isn't much that's rival, at this point, rivaling Egypt. The old Babylonian kingdom is declining. The Assyrian kingdom is just beginning to come together. So Egypt is the kind of undisputed superpower right now. So Joseph is just really powerful here. Then we learn in verse 40, the question, yeah, Joel. I would, this is just kind of a comment around the because yeah. I was thinking about this. You know, Joseph, he, he had kind of had a lot of these things in Potiphar's house mm-hmm. and could have, you know, had his wife mm-hmm. as well, but, you know, he, he didn't, you know, refused or deferred that. Yeah. And so here, now he gets all these things, obviously the ultimate yeah. level, and gets a wife that's legitimate. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. And I think that's a great lesson. Waiting on God's timing and not, you know, you know. Would, would, would this woman, would this woman be a, uh, she's not a Hebrew? No, she is not a Hebrew. She is, she, is an Egyptian. Again, no, she's an Egyptian. She would be an Egyptian. Um, but it's, we just don't know very much about this. Um, but we will learn about their children in the next, uh, before this chapter is over. And that's and then right, I want to get to that in a minute. Um, is she a woman of faith? Does she believe? I you know I don't know. But would Joseph have taught her about Yahweh? I mean, all of those things that we would have to conclude yes. But it's just um, I think you know this. But in the ancient world, and really up until even the modern world, you go back 150 years you still find marriages being arranged. Love, love did not precede a typical marriage. Love followed the marriage. Uh, was it somebody, who, I forget, somebody was asking me when I came in about Luther. Luther uh, married, uh, you know, he broke a thousand years of tradition in the Catholic Church and got married. He married a, a former nun, Katie von Bora, and um, he did not really fall deeply in love with her until after they were married. How they even, it's a great story. I won't tell you that this time. But it was very typical. I mean, the same we were studied about uh, Abraham uh, or about Isaac and, and, and Rebecca and remember uh, Jacob. And 
I mean, all, there, there, there were arranged marriages through the families, and they then fell in love after they were married. So um, this was an arranged marriage by Pharaoh. He obeyed what Pharaoh was telling him to do. Now, let, I don't, we're, we're about 1230, so I, I want to make sure we get this done, particularly this chapter, because it's a great chapter. So if I can, 46, Jovis was 30 years old. So he has been in and out of prison over the last decade when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went all through the land of Egypt. Now that means that he's, he's not in the desert. He's just going up and down the Nile. Because remember, the job of Pharaoh is to maintain the order, predictability, and stability of Egypt. That's now Joseph's job. Joseph has been given that job by Pharaoh. And so that's what he's doing because he knows what's coming. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up all the food in these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it and stored up the grain in great abundance. Like, now notice the simile, like the land of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Joseph is wisely doing what he counseled Pharaoh to do. Store every piece of grain you can possibly store because tough years are coming. Now verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, bore them to him. Joseph called his firstborn Manasseh. These are Hebrew names. These are not Egyptian names. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Manasseh means, in Hebrew, making to forget. Then the name of his second, he called Ephraim, another Hebrew name. Ephraim means to make fruitful. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Joseph has two sons. This is very, very important information for the rest of the Bible. Because these two sons of Joseph will get the blessing of the firstborn. Why? Because Reuben, now this is way ahead into into the book of Genesis, but Reuben's the firstborn son to Jacob and Rachel. But Reuben commits adultery with another woman and loses that firstborn right. Where does that firstborn right pass? It passes to Joseph's two boys. That's why when we will get to this way into the future, at the rate we're going, well, no, we're 42. So we'll get, 11th. huh? He was born 11th, Joseph. Yes, he's the 11th. Benjamin's the 12th son. There are 12 sons and one daughter. And Joseph was the 11th, though. Mm-hmm. In, in, uh, in the order. He gets the blessing that Reuben was supposed to have. That's right. He will get the blessing Reuben was supposed to have. And that blessing will go to Ephraim and Manasseh. Because God chose to do it that way. And because Joseph was the firstborn to Rachel. So, I mean, it's just, and then when we look at the land grants, which that isn't in Genesis. Unfortunately, that's in the conquest. But together, Manasseh and Ephraim will get the largest land grant in the dividing up the land. You remember what I'm talking about? Well, anyway, this is, this is an important piece of information for us to know right now. 
because it, it's something for the rest of the book, and as you get into the Old Testament and Exodus and, the, and into Joshua and Judges, the text just always assumes you know this, that these are the two boys of Joseph who inherit the firstborn rights. So, I mean, it's just really fascinating. That, and, it, and it's instructive, and that's why I think it's really, really important. We don't know much about this marriage relationship. We don't know much about it, but we do know. And Asenath gives is the wife. She gives birth to these boys, but Joseph names him. And even though Pharaoh had given him a Hebrew, uh, an Egyptian name, he doesn't give his boys Egyptian names. He gives them Hebrew names. And that's important. It's just Joseph is still loyal. He's focused. The culture of Egypt, everything about Egypt, the paganism of Egypt is not affecting him. He's still centered on God. And I think we must infer from this, although the Bible doesn't tell us this and doesn't explain it to us, that Joseph would have an influence on this, this, this wife, this Egyptian wife. And there's no reason to doubt that, but we just don't give enough information from the Bible. And so we read then in verse 53, uh, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land as Egypt came to an end, the seven years of famine began, as Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh sent all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do it. So when the famine spread over the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for famine was severe in the land. Verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt. Now that doesn't mean China, it just means the Mediterranean world came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because famine was severe over all the earth. Why is that important? Because Jacob's clan is running out of food. So Jacob sends his boys down to Egypt to buy grain. And, and Joseph was like 44 years old then because of his two That's about right. So That's about right. At, at age 44 when, when he's seen his brothers. Uh, yes. That's right. You're, you are really doing good math there. You must have passed arithmetic in school there, Woody. <laughs> you got it. No, that's all right. That, you got it. That is really good. That is really good. All right. Yeah, please. Back in verse 51, when he talks about Manasseh, right. made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Well, I think that would refer to all the things that his brothers had done to him, his father's house, the household, all the dysfunction and hurt and pain from his brothers and, and all of that. Joseph's family, uh, strike that, Jacob's family was not a strong family. It was a very dysfunctional family that you, can, you know about. Now, chapter 42 is... Um, we're only going to get started on this, but Joseph's brothers are going to come. And they don't know who Joseph is. I'm going to give you the big picture so we can, and we'll get into it. And what Joseph does, and it goes over the next couple of chapters, Joseph sets up a series of tests for his brothers. And these are tests that he wants to determine, have they changed? What has happened to their hearts? What has happened in their lives? 
And it's almost like Joseph, and I, I think this is the proper way to think about this. Joseph is almost calculating, before I reveal to them who I am, I want to find out, has God changed their hearts? Are they still the same hard-hearted, duplicitous, deceiving, conniving men that sold me to the Ishmaelites? And the tests are going to be very severe for these guys. Because all they know is this is the second most powerful man in the world that we're trying to buy grain from. And so Joseph just sets up a series of tests. He wants to find out what's going on in the hearts of my brothers. So let's get started with it. We'll have to, we won't get it all done today. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Behold, I've heard there are grain for sale in Egypt. Go down, buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. I, I'm always, I'm always a little bit um, surprised, but also smile. Why do you look at one another? Now that's an idiom, but he's saying, guys, do something. The family's in crisis. Don't stand and look at each other and twiddle your thumbs. Do I have to tell you to do everything? Can't just hear dad saying that. Do I have to tell you everything to do? And it's just, it's there's some humor there. There's some exasperation there, but there's also these guys are not being particularly proactive. So get off your duff and go down to Egypt. Verse 4. Uh, I strike that. Uh, go down by grain that we may live. Verse 3. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Now you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. I thought there were 12 brothers. Joseph is one of them, 10. So who's the other one? Benjamin, the youngest. Jacob will not let Benjamin out of his sight because Benjamin is the only other son, the only other child that was born to Rachel. And so it's really important to him. Though he's thinking, Jacob did not send Benjamin his brother, Joseph's brother with his brother. Why? For he feared that harm might happen to him. He'd lost Joseph. He assumed Joseph was dead. I'm not going to lose Benjamin. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the inference, there's lots of people going down to Egypt to buy grain. Verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. We already know that. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Now, immediately you should think of chapter 37. Because chapter 37 is when young little boy Joseph had the dream. Remember the dream and the bottom line of the dream? You guys are going to bow down to me one day. And you know, oh, yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, here they, they don't know it, but they're bowing down. It's in de- Again, it's not worshiping. This is in deference to his authority and who he is. And so chapter 37, (laughs) verses 7 and 9 are now fulfilled. What Joseph had said, as the dream he has interpreted and so on, (coughs) is now fulfilled. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like, and notice the simile, like strangers, and spoke roughly to them. ESV translates that adverb roughly. And that's probably one of the best ways to really take that word 
Meaning he's not particularly kind to them. He's not particularly gracious to them. He is treating them perhaps the way he treated everyone that came into the court. But particularly for them, he's not showing them any favor, not showing them any unusual kindness. And he said, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And in verse 9, as we already uh, stated, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. That's an idiom. Nakedness, ESV translates it that way. Now, I think you can figure out nakedness of the land. It's an idiom where we're vulnerable the vulnerable spots in the kingdom because you want to do you want to do ill to Egypt so you're spies from the Canaanite tribes trying to take advantage of this very difficult time in everybody's history and you want to spy out the vulnerable areas of the kingdom wow i mean that's a serious charge that's like the department of homeland security coming into your office and saying you're a spy for al qaeda or even worse isis I mean, you know, I'm making that up, but you know what I mean. It's a very serious charge. As a matter of fact, there's that potential capital offense. So Joseph is interested in finding out how are they going to respond. There's a question. Yeah. Um, given how many people would have been coming yes. there for green? We assume it's a large number. How in the world, I mean, like us walking into D.C. say, hey, I'm here to see the president. Uh, he's, got, he's got 10 minutes for me. How would they command an audience? How would they what? How could they command an audience? Oh, I don't know the exact answer to that, but if we go back to that previous chapter, Pharaoh had said as a, as a command, anyone that needs grain, anything that needs to occur, go to Joseph. Now, whether that means everyone personally went to Joseph or to his court with all of his advisors, but I can't answer that question specifically. Mm-hmm. How did his brothers get the actual personal audience with Joseph? Well, verse, verse 6 explains it. It said, now Joseph was governor, power over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people. Right. It would be Egyptians, it would be foreigners. So here you have someone who's outside of the borders saying, hey, why would we want to talk about that? I mean, it's we try to understand. Well, I, you know, again, I'm not sure if I can answer that specifically, but it's, this is apparently part of the authority that Pharaoh has given to Joseph. And this, I can be very pragmatic about this too, this is a money-making operation for the kingdom of Egypt. Sure. I mean, they are making a bundle on it, out of this. Uh, that sounds that sounds like Donald Trump. But what I mean is <laughs> they're, they're, they're using it as a... They're using it because they had wisely stored up the grain and everything. Now they're using it because there's an abundance of grain to feed all the people of Egypt. Now they're selling it to anyone else that can buy it. And so possibly, and I, again, I'm only suggesting what some others have said, perhaps the foreigners who come into the land and Canaanite people, because these were assumed to be Canaan, from Canaan because that's where they said they lived, uh, maybe Joseph handled all the foreigners. Maybe Joseph personally dealt with all the foreigners. Instead of maybe some of his 
court officials dealt with Egyptians who from way down south at the edge of the kingdom in the south are buying grain. But uh, it is. But you know, the other aspect of this, of course, which is obvious in the text, God's providentially superintending all this. So whatever needed to happen for these boys to appear before Joseph, it's going to happen. So this is, uh, well, uh, we're almost out of time. One more thing before we're done. Um, where did I leave off? Verse 10. Okay, this charge your spies. Now verse 11, or 10, 11. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said, this is Joseph. No, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to son. You're checking out our vulnerability. And they said, we are your servants, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is to this day with our father. One is no more, meaning Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph, but he, we're only guessing he's dead, no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said, you are spies. And here's the first test. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. That's test number one. Come back next week and you'll see how this works out. There are a whole series of tests in the next couple chapters that Joseph lays out for his brothers. It's uh, this is good stuff, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. It's very good. good great character study of, of a magnificent man of Scripture. Lord, we're thankful for the privilege, uh, indeed, the high honor you give us to study the Word of God together. Thank you for these men and, and their lives. Uh, if there's one takeaway from this character study of Joseph is that we would be, as Joseph was, a man of faith, a man who trusts you even in very difficult times as he was in prison for years, kind of in and out of prison with these different situations, Potiphar and then the cupbearer and all that stuff, he meets all these people. But Lord, you, as the Bible says, you were with Joseph. And so you're superintending all these events and all of these affairs to accomplish your purposes. And as a couple of the guys said, the fundamental purpose right now is to get Joseph's, get Jacob's clan down to Egypt, where the nation is going to be born. So, Lord, we learn, too, another key takeaway is that you are the sovereign Lord of history. You are accomplishing your purposes. We are the instruments you use to accomplish that purpose. So even in this day, in 2016, we represent you. We represent you in what we do and what we say. And help us to do that well in an honorable way to bring glory to you. Be with these men tomorrow. We are thankful we live in a nation where there's still a national day of Thanksgiving. May it be a day, whatever we're doing, with family, friends, or whatever, where we take some time tomorrow to truly thank you, to express our great thankfulness and all that we owe to you. Because you are our creator, you are our savior, our redeemer, You are now our Lord and master of our lives. So help us to reflect that in everything we do and say. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.